0: This is the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast, the neurohacking show where we teach you how to optimize your cognition. Keep up to date at Roscoe's Wetsuit Now here's your host, Toby Passman.
1: All right, welcome everyone to a new episode of the Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro Podcast. Today we have a special guest, Ben Ahrens. Before we introduce Ben, Ben is going to tell us a bit about why we should tune into the show today.
0: Yeah. So, first of all, thanks for having me on. Glad to be here and excited for a good conversation ahead. I really think for anyone listening, you know, tuning in, um, anyone who might be feeling stuck, cycles of overwhelm, anxiety, and just really wanting to move forward, wanting to be able to implement the changes that they want to see in their life, whether those be physical changes like healing or recovering from anxiety, depression, or chronic condition like was my case, or just apply this kind of neuroscience stuff that I'm sure we're going to get into to breaking old habits and routines and um, kind of solidifying momentum and forward motion as your new default state. I think for, for me, you know, it's always been a fascination with how we can achieve and accomplish the things that we want to with a sense of ease without feeling like we have like we're trying to drive forward with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. So today, I think my biggest hope is to help people uh, remove the handbrake from, from their endeavors, whatever those may be.
1: Awesome. And to tell you guys a little more about Ben, Ben is a chronic illness recovery expert, a TEDx speaker, a neuroplastic, neuroplasticity coach, and the co-founder of ReOrigin. He's been a high-performance athlete as well as chronically ill and bed-bound for years on end. After his miraculous recovery, he traveled the globe and worked for eight years as executive vice president at Innovative Medicine, seeking out and studying with the best medical, neuroscience, and human performance experts. He spent every waking moment for the past two decades exploring the boundaries of our potential, and what he found is astonishing. When you learn to access the control panel of your mind, the potential for healing is limitless. And the best part is everyone can tap into it. So he's going to show us how to do that today. So Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little about kind of your, your entry into kind of this field of neuroscience. It sounds like it kind of started with, with going through some of your own challenges.
0: It did, yeah. So, you know, as you pointed out, in my mid-20s, I went from being a fairly active or very active uh, athlete and a trainer, and I also ran a, uh, a summer surf camp here in eastern Long Island, um, went from that to being completely debilitated, ultimately bedbound for three years with what turned out to be a bad case of neurological Lyme disease um, combined with stress and Uh, Other pathogens that I'd picked up while traveling and surfing in the years prior, but this really kind of, you know, landed me in this spot where I was kind of forced to figure out how to change my stress response, how to change my brain. So this is something I'm looking forward to getting into, but it really, you know, started, um, early on in my life with a fascination that the body could change itself back to high school, getting into health and fitness and, and exercise. I was just fascinated with this idea that you could do certain activities that would fundamentally change the basically structure, function, and appearance of your body. And then later in my mid-20s, I started to get back into that, but now looking at how we can tap into the brain and can we change the functions and structures of the brain? We now know we can with the science of neuroplasticity, but can we do it in very specific ways that will enable us and enable our bodies to recover from illness or injury, um, to overcome any mental, you know, hurdles or roadblocks, and basically change our experience of life.
1: Right. So you brought up the, the concept of neuroplasticity, the brain's ability to to change and reorganize itself, re- rewire itself. Um, and if it weren't for that, none of none of this would we wouldn't even be talking about any of the stuff on the podcast. So that that key concept is kind of enables all of this, in my eyes. So what were, what were some of the, the most powerful kind of, you know, hacks or, or realizations that you had in terms of, you know, how you could get the brain to change, how you could get it to, to do what you wanted um, with various uh, mechanisms?
0: Yeah, well, you know, I'll say that that the brain is still very much a black box when it comes to neuroscience research, and we now have a good understanding of different areas of the brain, like the limbic system versus the cortex, you know, what is sort of the um, initiation point of the stress response, but it's really only in the last decade that we've learned how we can hack into this box, right, and make actual changes. So for me, like I mentioned, it was it was a life or death scenario. Uh, one of the side effects or, or impacts or maybe main effects of the Lyme disease was that I had brain lesions. So I had, you know, ostensibly what showed up on MRIs is brain damage um, that was thought to not repair itself. And um, so, you know, I wanted to find a way to see if this neuroplasticity stuff actually works, if I could change my brain, and if by doing that, that that would change my body. And for me, you know to answer your question, it started with finding the lowest hanging fruit, the simplest inroad into how I could access this sort of control panel of my mind, and it started for me with with taking a deep breath. And it just came from observation, from realization in a moment of panic that I was in this hypervigilant state, that my body wasn't healing and it was also causing me to have all of these um, thoughts of, you know, catastrophizing and projecting into the future that I'll never be able to walk again and do all these things. And in that moment, my body, maybe some higher wisdom in me, just knew to took a, take a step back and prompted me to take this, this deep breath that allowed my nervous system to just relax for a moment, to just calm down. And we now know from something that uh, very famous scientist Viktor Frankl said that between stimulus and response, there's a space, right? And in that space lies our freedom to choose. So if we can get in that gap between stimulus and response, that's to say, you know, the stimulus could be um, a negative thought, an emotion, it can be a physical symptom. And then the response can be this over overdrive mode, this kind of tension in the body or further negative thoughts. But if we can get inside that gap, then we have this choice now we can actually pause we can take a breath and we can decide how we want our mind and body to respond instead i love that
1: i love that that that's such an important gap right there i mean that's something i think of a lot you know in terms of you know say your boss yells at you you know and and most people's immediate reaction is you know fear or you know feeling bad about themselves or you know a million other kind of seemingly automated or automatically generated responses but really as you're saying there is that gap where there's like these internal representations that our brain is making based on that stimulus the stimulus being the boss yelling at you that's not to say that that is what's causing you to have the negative emotional response like there's something in between there so what you're highlighting I think is so so key and what what Viktor Frankl highlighted that's so important
0: yeah it's a, it's a really good point you made that you know when we're stuck in in these loops of just uh, kind of action and reaction, we sometimes fail to notice that there even is that space and that there is an alternative response. Like I think the example is a great one that you just gave, you know, you get in an argument or boss is yelling at you about something um, and we have tend to have these sort of default reactions that are pre-programmed from past experiences or from certain emotions associated with it. Like, oh, this means I messed up or I'm not good enough, or I'm not going to make the next you know level to, to the career. Um, and all of these things tend to feed into creating a conditioned response. But when you become aware of like that, that's what happened, basically your response is really no more than a habit. It gives us this tremendous ability, this tremendous freedom to say, okay, what what habit would be more advantageous to this? And how can I start to foster that? Because events in and of themselves are not necessarily positive or negative, right? It's the story we create about it and the way we, we respond. One person might hear the, the yelling boss and think, you know, my career is over, my life is over, and have an emotional response uh, based on that process another one might you know, hear it and get exhilarated at the opportunity to grow and learn you know, from this. This is an opportunity for me to get better at, <laughs> whether it's get, getting better, better at arguing or getting better at taking criticism or instruction, or just thinking of it as this person is actually strengthening me um, as an employee, you know, it would be another story you could tell yourself. But based on that story, the bodily response and the chemical response is gonna be quite different.
1: Right. So, so this is all going on so fast. I mean, for, for most people, you know, they, they might not even realize that this is that all of these kind of events are taking place in their mind that ultimately creates the, the end result of them feeling a certain way based on the stimulus. So besides just, you know, stepping back and taking a deep breath, what, what other ways for you had, were you able to find you, you know, being able to kind of get a better gauge on what some of those stories were uh, you know, what some of those emotional responses were, and then how you went about sort of changing or rewiring those.
0: Yeah, sure. So it, it starts with awareness. It starts with awareness and understanding of your reaction and what you're experiencing. And the second step from there would be, you know, interrupting. And this can be like taking a deep breath, changing your physiology. Um with Reorigin, we've created some like five-step process that people can actually go through to, um, to do these different steps, to get in that space. And ultimately, it kind of culminates in Uh, choosing a predetermined response. So one exercise that we have people do, which is really beneficial, is to map out your what I call thought loops, or these are really behavioral loops, right? So starting with identifying the trigger, in this case, sticking with that example, you know, the yelling boss would be the trigger. So the next kind of level down from there would be, okay, when I experience this event, um, what is... The response going on in my body, right? Like, what's, what does that feel like? Okay. I feel restriction. I feel uh, hesitation. I feel, you know, anxiety, whatever it might be. And just kind of listing those things out. And then the next thing, the next step is now, what is the behavior? When I feel these, you know, unpleasant sensations or this feeling of agitation in the system, what do I usually go and do about it? Well, maybe in that moment, you know, you shut down a little bit throat gets closed, don't speak your mind, you know, it leads to a certain behavioral pattern. Um, and once that's mapped out, then what, what that gives us the ability to do is to, one, just basically bring that from the subconscious to the conscious mind, and then two, overwrite it with a response that we choose. So it kind of, like I said, it starts with the, with the story, but if your goal is to be able to stay in contact in that situation, as opposed to go into withdrawal, which means, um, you know, shying away from the situation, losing our sense of self, uh, losing in contact with the moment. But if our, if our goal is to really stay in contact, we can start to kind of reverse engineer what that would look like or what that would take. So maybe the story is, like I said, one of, okay, this is a learning experience. You know, this isn't something bad. This is neutral or even positive. Um, so you re kind of calibrate the trigger as something neutral or positive. And then we, with the, um, reaction, when you believe that this is something happening for you, instead of to you, you can start to tap into, okay, now what would that feel like in the body? What sort of response would that be? Well, maybe instead of my shoulders coming forward and me, you know, clamping down and hiding away, maybe actually my shoulders drop down, my chest comes out and I feel, you know, this, this confidence that I'm growing in this moment. And then the final one is, what is the behavior associated with that? And that would be like engaging in the conversation, maybe asking for more feedback or more um, you know, specifics around why this, this conversation is taking place. So this really gives us the power to say, okay, I'm gonna transform from this current state, this current situation into this one, which is far more desirable in the long run.
1: And when it comes to sort of rewriting those stories and behavioral responses, if someone has been, you know, telling themselves, you know, kind of negative stories or or having, you know, kind of just, you know, sort of uh, ab reactions to to these events that are going on, and now they're wanting to to go in, in sort of shift some of that stuff, you know, what do we know as far as kind of the, the science of neuroplasticity in terms of how long does it take? You know, I assume it, you know, you can't just tell yourself one time, you know, that, Oh my boss, you know what? You know it's a learning experience. I can do something differently. If you've been telling yourself for the past five years that your boss yelling at you means that you suck and that you're going to get fired and you're never going to amount to anything, I you know it's not going to just be one time uh, that's going to rewrite all of that. So so can you kind of talk talk to me about you know with neuroplasticity, how how long does it take to start seeing those habit uh, you know story changes?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So. You know, neuroplasticity is really just basically a process of the brain changing itself, and this can work in both ways. So when we take on these sort of responses, the what we call maladaptive response, these are the ones that are, you know, less advantageous, that are not producing positive effects in our life, those two were conditioned um, through changes in the brain by way of neuroplasticity. So what we're trying to do is, is use that same mechanism, that same ability that our brain has to change, but now we're doing it consciously. Everything that we come in contact with basically changes the brain. But most of the time, this is happening without our permission. We're becoming programmed by past events and experiences that we're not choosing. We're not choosing that certain reaction. So this gives us the chance to choose our new reaction. And like you pointed out, you know, this is not the kind of thing that you do uh, once and then it's done. Uh, what I describe that that process of, of first and foremost awareness, which is mapping your your thought loops and your, your behavioral patterns, um, that's really a first step. That's the awareness and understanding. So you're bringing it to light. A next step would be rehearsing this, conditioning it. So the brain, the way that the brain changes is very much like the way that the body changes in response to exercise. I don't think anyone goes into the gym and does one workout, looks in the mirror and says, "Well, that didn't work," <laughs> you know. People kind of understand whether they practice it or not. We all have this understanding that in order to make those kinds of changes, it just takes consistency over time. And neural pathways change in the same way. So one example people may have heard of is like, you know, imagine you have a truck driving down the beach, fresh sand as it goes down the the sand, it makes grooves and it leaves this track behind it. Another truck comes along and it goes down and it tends to kind of fall into that same track because it's like, oh, that sand is already matted down. It's going to be easier, more efficient to go down that pathway. So the more trucks drive down that pathway, uh, the more it just kind of deepens those grooves and solidifies that, uh, making it you know, to the point where it's actually challenging for a truck to get out of that, because now they have to jump over a little hurdle, they have to go into fresh sand, it's a little bit unknown, it's, uh, you know, uncomfortable at times. So with the brain, when we're talking about, you know, making these kinds of neuroplastic shifts, it's really a process of getting out of those deeply dug, in some cases, deeply dug grooves in the brain that we simply knows neural pathways. And through a process of pruning and then unmasking a new pathway and continuing to choose the new pathway, eventually it becomes our, our new default state, the new road that those trucks will go down or that our, in this case, our responses will, will uh, follow along. And you know, for to answer the question, like how long does this take? The answer is actually not as long as you would think what's usually typically challenging is initially getting out of the groove because it's so ingrained and it's so familiar. But once you start to practice this and you have a system, you have a methodology for how you can do this, you know, daily, just through repetition, doesn't have to be complicated. It's better if it's simple, but as long as this is something that you can practice for even a few minutes a day, eventually it becomes much, much easier. And I like to say that, you know, every time you, uh, Exercise that ability to choose and you successfully execute the new response over the old one, it's just like casting a vote for the person that you want to become. So rather than think of this as, you know, something that we really have to mount a Herculean effort to push in, in a certain direction, and then it's going to be done at some point. Um, it's much more of a, you know, a malleable process of something that's just every time you do it, that's a win. Every time you remember to break the pattern and replace it, that's absolutely a win. The more frequently you do it, the more that new groove gets utilized. And eventually it will get to the point where you don't, you don't have to think about it anymore. It literally becomes your new default way of being.
1: And not too dissimilar from what you're talking about with, with exercise, where it's like you train a muscle enough, you, you, Put that repetition up in, and you know enough times, and you start seeing the results. That muscle, you know, starts to grow, get stronger. And I, I love what you you mentioned there, as far as like you know, you not thinking that you could go to the gym one time and like see such astounding results. Whereas you know, people might sometimes have the misnomer that that the brain is work you know can work in that way, where where you could just do something one time. Like, you know, I think it's it's something like the gym. You can you can directly see the evidence of, you know, you could you could lift. It doesn't matter how hard you go at the gym one time, you're gonna wake up the next day and your, your muscles are probably gonna be, you know, the the same size that they were the, the previous day. Um, yep. and you're you're gonna, but then you're gonna see after doing the same program for two weeks, three weeks, you're gonna start seeing small changes, and that's gonna probably motivate you to continue. And then you're gonna look back after doing that exercise regimen for two months, for six months, you're going to look back and, and see really profound changes. And I think, I think it's it's similar with the brain, except you just you can't see it, which I think is is one of the big things that maybe uh I don't know, trips people up and when it comes to brain changes. But I, I love the the analogy there because I think it's super important for people to to realize that.
0: Yeah. You know, it's this interesting thing starts to happen when you Um, practice doing this, which is that we start to foster this connection, something known as interoception. So in the physical domain, we know that proprioception is your awareness, your brain's awareness of your body's relationship to things external to you, or basically it's how it's situated in space um so even you know tactile sensations of you know feeling this pen is 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 an act of proprioception being able to touch your nose in the dark is proprioception um there's another concept called interoception and this is the mechanism by which we can actually connect with our internal state and at first it just it's kind of about monitoring it so it's about feeling those changes and learning how to identify you know, when you're in fight or flight, you know, when you're in a sympathetic state versus a parasympathetic state, what's going on in your body. But the more you practice this, the more you strengthen that neurological connection to different regions of your your body and your internal systems to the point where you can actually start to influence them as well. So it's, it's, Actually, a really, really cool process as you get into this, you just start to feel far more in tune and in touch with your body. And that feedback no longer needs such translation. You know, after some time, you might not need to do those thought loop worksheets or something anymore. You can actually just immediately tune into uh, and know not only know like this is the response that's happening now, but you'll know what to do in order to change it. So
1: the first step, kind of being becoming aware of that response, and then second step, being aware, uh, able to actually start changing um, that response, sounds like. Yeah,
0: yeah, and and the next one from there is something that you just hit on, which I think is really important, and that is the process of what we call incremental training or gradual exposure. Now this is also, you know, not un, not not dissimilar to how we build strength or muscles. You go into a gym, you lift the you know 50 pound dumbbells. And for the first couple of weeks, they're pretty hard. <laughs> and then after that, they get lighter. And we know that they didn't actually get lighter. It's that you got stronger. Um, and you go through that phase before, you know, moving on to the next level of either increasing repetition, so increasing exposure or increasing the resistance. And the same thing is applied here. It's important when when practicing this stuff to stay within a certain a comfort zone, or stay kind of on the on the circumference of your comfort zone, not to go too far too fast because that can create more of that withdrawal, which is what we're trying to avoid. The real goal of what we're we're trying to do is stay in contact with the challenge. So by training incrementally, what you'll find is that the thing that used to be a challenge ends up being you know less of a challenge. Maybe public speaking at first was really intimidating. But as you do it, the small crowd like is not so intimidating. And then you can move on to a larger venue. Right, right. So when it comes to kind
1: of developing that interoception ability, I mean, just from my first thoughts, it seems like, you know, most ways that kind of quiet, you know, the limbic system that kind of decrease our stress response, meditation, yoga, you know, deep breathing. It seems like to me, all of those things would probably shift people into more of that that parasympathetic state that's going to be more conducive to interoception. Is that, am I, am I to something there or?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The, these different practices, you know, meditation, breathing exercises, relaxation, visualization, these are all ways that we can, we can start to drop more into that parasympathetic state And that's the state that you want to be in when it comes to fostering that deeper connection to your internal state. So the the thing about neuroplasticity where it uh, deviates a little bit from just standard, say, meditation or visualization is that you can be extremely targeted when you use neuroplasticity. So whereas meditation, I like to say, you know, calms the arousal of the stress response, using neuroplasticity in this specific way you can actually prevent the stress response from becoming aroused in the first place. Because that thing that was once a trigger to you, now that you've made a new neurological association, created those new pathways, now it's no longer triggering to to you. It doesn't have those same effects on you.
1: Have you ever heard of brain photobiomodulation before? Photobiomodulation involves red and near-infrared light energy Being absorbed by the mitochondria in various tissues in the body, including the brain, which is packed full of mitochondria. Some of the benefits of brain photobiomodulation include enhanced mitochondrial function, increased blood flow, increased cellular energy, reduced inflammation, neuroprotection, and neurogenesis and synaptogenesis, the growth of new brain cells and new connections amongst those cells. This ad was sponsored by Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro LLC. Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro LLC is an applied neuroscience company bringing premium neuro health coaching and targeted neuromodulation services individualized to each client's unique neurophysiology. Check out roscoeswetsuitneuro.com to learn more. Got it. Got it. So, you know, in terms of like with, with exercise, it, you know, being there's ways, I mean, I guess just kind of like looking at yourself in the mirror where you can kind of see that it's working. How, how do you know that interoception or, or this kind of harnessing of neuroplasticity in this way, how, how can someone kind of know that they're on the right track?
0: Great question. I mean, so because we're dealing with something that's inherently subjective, and I'm sure there are some some ways. If you look at like Muse headband and you know different things, um, functional MRIs, where eventually I'm sure they'll be brain mapping all of this stuff if they're they're not already. Um, but gauging it internally and subjectively is actually one of the easiest, quickest ways that people can can uh, can practice to get this feedback, and it can happen in within a few minutes. So I'll give you an example. Let's say, you know, take something that you want to, um, change your response to, whether it's that arguing boss or, um, for me, when I was first getting back into, into full-time work after, uh, so many years of, of illness, I had, um, very much like heightened sensory perception. So I was struggling with, um, sensitivities to light and sound and smells and chemicals and all sorts of thing, you, you know, you name it. And one of the things that was really triggering to me was the ringing phone. When the phone would ring in, in my office, I would just feel like a panic attack come on because it was just like, you know, my mind would go to thoughts of um, not being able to answer the the question of the customer service, you know, on the other line or whatever it might be. It just induced this panic response. So one of the things I practiced was um, every time that phone rang, the simple rule that I made for myself was rather than pick it up quickly in a, in a panic and sort of a knee jerk reaction. I'm gonna push myself back from my desk. I'm gonna take a deep breath. I'm gonna put a smile on my face, You know, pause another moment, and then I'm gonna pick up the phone. And the more I did this, the easier it became. And after about two weeks, what I realized was that the ringing phone had switched to become a trigger for relaxation. So every time I heard the ringing phone, all of a sudden I would start to breathe, Deeper, my shoulders would relax, a smile would come to my face, and there was the same event, but because I had chosen a different res- response and rehearsed that for you know days and days on on end, it actually had this this completely different impact. So to get back to your question of how can people start to gauge this aside from just um, you know the, the subjective feeling of it, one simple way is you can put a number to it. So let's say you have a particular thing that's triggering you, whether it's causing you anxiety or some you know, sense of, of tightness, you can just ask yourself on a scale of one to 10, how big is that anxiety response, right? Maybe it's at an eight when I, when I think about it. You can do it in your mind's eye. So you can imagine yourself, let's say again, you know, public speaking, imagine yourself on a podium in front of a thousand people, really vividly imagine it and see how you're feeling in that moment. So maybe the anxiety, the overwhelm is up to an eight, but then you can practice these techniques. And of course you can practice them in controlled environments, like in your mind through visualization, you can practice speaking to, you know a group of your closest friends. Then you can actually do that, slowly increase the the crowd size, whether in your mind's eye or in reality. Um, But these are just various ways you can, you can sort of like step, you know, step that up um, one rung of the ladder at a time. And then you come back to, okay, now when I picture myself in front of that same crowd, you know, where's my anxiety at? And most likely what you'll find is that it comes down to, a, you know, a one or a two. Got it. Got it. So,
1: you know, it, it seems to me that the the stuff that we're talking about, you know, is going gonna, is gonna to be important and beneficial really for anyone with the brain, you know, that uh, it's pretty, pretty universal that this stuff is going to going to be relevant to you. But from just like looking at your website, you know, I saw that a lot of a lot of different kind of psychiatric conditions can be improved by this sort of method. Can you talk to me a little about what the research is showing?
0: Yeah. So, you know, we're talking a lot about behavioral loops and habits, but what we're really talking about is these ingrained responses that are completely subconscious. So the same way that the boss or the ringing phone or the crowd might cause you to have a certain reaction in the body and a certain behavior, you know, to try and avoid the thing that's, that's uncomfortable. The same thing can, can happen in a deeply subconscious way, um, and lead to something called conditioned immune suppression. So there's a whole host of, of illnesses now known as, uh, you know, chronic or or self-perpetuating inflammatory conditions. These are things like chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, fibromyalgia, you know, pain, this migrating pain in the muscles and joints, um, even to some extent what we're seeing with long-haul COVID and things like uh, you know, Lyme disease or late-stage Lyme disease, what I had, are part of the reason why perhaps not what caused them in the first place, but what's now keeping them there is this overactive stress response stemming from the limbic system, which is essentially creating a vicious cycle whereby you might have certain physical symptoms of sensitivities or pain in the body or fatigue. And then this feeds back into the limbic system, letting the brain know, okay, there's something wrong here. And then the brain does what it does when it thinks it's under attack or thinks that it needs to to jump in, which is it basically produces an inflammatory response. So it floods the system with cortisol, adrenaline, epinephrine, and upregulates the inflammatory processes of the body that in an acute instance, these are essential. We want this to happen because it fights off pathogens. It heals wounds. Um, The problem is in this day and age, when these symptoms persist without the root cause being there or without that being a prominent factor anymore, then the body will still produce this overactive stress response, which leads to more symptoms, which leads to more subconscious stress and inflammation, which leads to more symptoms and round and round we go. And it's like that saying, you know, objects in motion stay in motion unless acted upon by an outside source. Fortunately, like these, using these methods that we're talking about, becoming aware, intervening and replacing, you can start to shift that vicious cycle into a virtuous circle that actually allows the body to do what it naturally does. And that's heal itself.
1: Got it. Got it. So yeah, what you're, what you're mentioning there, kind of the, the connections, I think, you know, the research is starting to sh- uh, show the, the, what is it, psycho neuroimmunology kind of this growing field of research showing how, you know, it's like we've known, you know, the gut brain connection, you know, for a little while, but now they're, they're starting to see like the brain, the brain immune connection and how, how that's so uh, intricately related. So I think kind of what, what you're touching on there, it's super fascinating stuff.
0: It is, yeah. And, you know, it's an interesting thing that that field really started emerging in the 70s. um, And it was, like you mentioned, called psychoneuroimmunology, describing that connection. And about a decade later, they continued researching and they actually expanded the the name to PNEI, which stands for psychoneuroendocrine immunology, because they discovered that now this whole system um, involves the endocrine system. And my theory is that As they keep researching this, it's just going to, that name is going to get longer and longer because they're going to find that every single system is impacted by the brain. The brain is literally like the control center. It's, I like to say, it's the, the head orchestrator that conducts all of the cells and systems in the body to coordinate their functions. And it does this according to certain information. Now, some of that information is... Can be from our thoughts, like the things that we tell ourselves. Some of that is just instructions that it gets from the environment. Right, a pathogen comes in, the brain, you know, creates antibodies, and well, not the brain, but the immune system. Brain signals the immune system to create antibodies, and it starts this whole cascading process. Sometimes, and what we're referring to here when we talk about these these chronic inflammatory conditions, is that the brain might have learned certain information. It might have learned like in my case, that the ringing phone is bad or dangerous, when in fact that information is incorrect or obsolete. It's something that we actually need to go in and change. The fortunate thing is that through neuroplasticity, in the same way the brain initially got programmed with these responses, we can get in that that space and start to shift those mechanisms. So I'll give you a really interesting example here. Um, And it's important to, to note at this point that these are very subconscious processes. So while the conditions that we're talking about, like chronic Lyme disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, adrenal fatigue, fibromyalgia, while these are very real conditions with real symptoms and real physical impacts on the body, what may be keeping them there is this underlying neural circuitry. And just to show like how subconscious this is, there was a study done on rats where rats were given um, a dextrose solution combined with the uh, E. coli virus, right? So uh, sugar water combined with this virus. And as you would expect, they mounted the immune response. And this was done over and over again. So they were you know, getting conditioned during this phase. Then the experiment was repeated and they were just given sugar water. So no traces of the virus whatsoever. But still the immune system reacted in the exact same way as if they were being reinfected for the first time. So it just shows you, obviously, these rats were not aware this was happening. This was not a conscious thing on their part. It was a conditioned immune suppression that was taking place there. And the same way this works or can work to our uh, impediment, it can also very much work to our advantage. And just to give you one more example of, of how that looks, there was an article I remember reading a couple of years back in the New York Times called Placebo Doping. And they were talking about, have you heard about this?
1: I think so. Okay,
0: so they're talking about how uh, they were using the same kind of placebo effect, um, but to have a positive impact. In this case, it was on athletes, on swimmers. And what they would do was, I think they were injecting the swimmers with, uh, with morphine or some sort of, um, you know, uh, opiate to help them overcome or push past their pain threshold. So basically, they could sprint swim you know, much further, much faster than they normally would be able to, not feeling as susceptible to lactic acid and, and pain that goes along with that. Um, of course, this is highly illegal. So they can't be doping. You know, Their, their blood needs to come back clean um, in, in order to compete. So what they found they could do was they could entrain them. They could condition the limbic system with these series of injections. And then on game day or leading up to it, they could just give them a saline injection, no traces of any sort of drugs whatsoever. But because of that conditioned learned association, their, their body would actually produce its own uh, opioids. So they would actually be able to push past their, their pain threshold, even without this exogenous or external you know, chemicals, their body would create those chemicals internally.
1: That's super fascinating I, I definitely have not been aware of that that same sort of research and it's it almost contradicts like what I would think would happen which is like the effects of like the drug withdrawal where it's like your body would get into a state where it is getting accustomed to like say the the opioids or whatever and then you try to perform without that and then it's like you' I would I would think if you were to ask me what the results of that were I would have think, Thought that people's pain threshold would be even lower than normal. So I think that- in
0: this, yeah, it's a good point. I think in this case, they they were giving them a real minimum effective dose, so they weren't giving them this on a you know daily basis. They were just giving them the effective dose needed to um, create that response to sort of um, condition in that response. So I don't think that that it was sufficient amounts circulating through their system at all times to for them to experience withdrawal by going off of it. But yeah, it is a really fascinating study and example of how your brain is actually produced, uh, capable of producing just about any chemical compound uh, that a pharmaceutical you know company could make. And there are ways to activate this. And now we know there was even a, a article that came out last week in the Washington Post about brain training, this type of neuroplasticity training for chronic pain syndrome and how it had a 66% effectiveness rate um, in eradicating long-term chronic pain uh, in people that, that use this method, because of the fact that your brain can literally shut down and block pain signals by producing its own opioids. That's
1: really fascinating. And it, it makes me think just the implications of that sort of research in terms of, you know, whether that be you know, say, say the long-term, you know, benefits that people are seeing from like, you know, single or, or, you know, a few doses of say like psilocybin mushrooms, right. You know, they, they do follow-up studies and see people's depression is, is still radically improved even, even a year later without them continuously needing to, to take that. So it's like, I almost wonder if the, the same thing is kind of going on there where, you know, their person, a person's brain is, you know, changing in some way because of, you know, the, the, the drug or the substance. um, But then that's sort of reprogramming the brain kind of on a core level. And I would think maybe similar thing could happen. I mean, with, you know, students say taking Adderall for like ADHD and oftentimes people like, you know, outgrowing that, but what if there was something going on where it's just that person's brain is improving, if they do have ADHD and they're taking Adderall, what if, you know, just the, the repetition of taking Adderall for that long of a time, maybe that can just train that person's brain to be at a more focused, in a more focused state, kind of on a core level.
0: I don't yeah, know. I think we're, we're at a pretty interesting time with, with brain research and a lot of development going on. And um, I can't really speak, you know, personally to uh, psilocybin or, or things like that. But um, I would imagine that, you know, like anything, I, I think of these things as tools and it really comes down to how they're used. And with that example of the swimmers, one of the, the key components to that study was that it was combined with an activity. It was combined with the specific result that they were training for, which was you know faster lap times. And so, um, when it comes to to you know using any any other sort of substance to like push yourself, now we can you know we'll get a little bit into like biohacking and this whole whole concept because. Uh, even the concept of biohacking, I, I find, is, is evolving, whereas at first it was very much in, in a way about you know, seeing how we could, in, in some sense, manipulate or coerce our brain or body to function in a certain way. Now we're kind of getting that the body has its own and the brain has its own own nature, and rather than try and force it, because when you push against something, it will likely push back, how can we use tools to facilitate it to do what it naturally does? You know How can we feed it the right... Information um, or training or conditioning, so that it can uh, do what we want, and so that can become solidified. But yes, to your point, that is something I, I thought about of you know using some sort of um, you know what, what we can call crutches or, or helpers to get you to a certain state. And it would certainly make sense that if you you know take a substance or, or do something to let's say help you learn Spanish, and then you wean off the, the substance, well, you're probably still going to know the language. So. Certainly neural pathways in the brain have changed that allowed you to learn the language and it, there's no reason to think that those would suddenly and uh, miraculously revert once you've changed that. But of course there, there are risks associated with it as well.
1: Right, right. I'm just thinking right to, to Bradley Cooper's character in a, in limitless you know taking taking NZT right And oh yes
0: <laughs> that's 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 like the uh, yeah the, the goal for everyone. that's like the dream.
1: <laughs> right, right, right i think in, in that movie it's like his character like when he i don't know if he forgot all the languages he probably didn't forget the languages he just became very sick once he he stopped taking the drug but exactly who, who knows what would happen in, in a real life sort of situation yeah. like that yeah but i wanted to sort of ask you as far as you know um as we move towards kind of more of the biohacking side you know we talked about you know the ways in which kind of the mind can regulate uh you know, sort of the immune system and and inflammation in the body. Now, how about the opposite too, in terms of if someone is, you know, uh, eating a low inflammatory diet, uh, you know, taking supplements like fish oil stuff to to reduce the inflammation in the body, can that in turn affect our ability to regulate what's going on related to these kind of internal processes and stories and habit changes?
0: Well, you know, I I like to think of this in terms of, of the body's natural abilities. So what is it, if left to its own devices, let's say in an ideal scenario where we haven't been pre-programmed or we don't have a lot of stressors and triggers and things that are um, you know, changing the way the brain interrelates with the rest of the body, um, then we know that this natural state is called homeostasis. So the body will settle at natural, you know, appropriate levels of inflammation and stress, and basically, as we mentioned, the brain, as this like chief orchestrator, it will conduct all of the organs and systems in the body to function in harmony. So, it's in in my view, it's really all of these other things that that we do are much more kind of a process of subtraction. You know, you mentioned you know diet, low inflammation diet, or something. Um, Oftentimes what's causing inflammation, uh, if it is something from the diet, it's, it's usually something that, that we've added in right in our modern day. So I really like to think of these as like subtractive processes. You know, what, um, whether it's foods or thoughts, can I eliminate and remove over time to allow my body to settle in its natural state rather than think that we have to somehow through certain types of supplements, um, you know push our body to, uh, to settle back in homeostasis and, you know, normal infl- uh, inflammation levels. It's much more about um, just kind of setting it up and allowing it to do its thing. I see. Okay.
1: Now, Ben, we're coming up onto the end of the show, but I wanted to ask you just as far as, you know, when you kind of look towards the future of neuroplasticity and I mean, obviously we're, we're still in the relatively early stages. I mean, this was, you know, the discovery of neuroplasticity and, and neurogenesis, the brain's ability to grow new brain cells and new connections amongst those cells. I mean, these are relatively new concepts when you think about it. And it seems like there's gonna be such profound, you know, implications for, for all sorts of, whether that be, you know, different training systems as you sort of devised, um, or other technologies, like where, where do you see all of this stuff going in the future?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um you know, we started off this conversation with, with me saying that, you know, if anyone's feeling stuck in any way, whether it's caught in a loop of, you know, physical, like this kind of inflammatory cycle or mental emotional loops or habit loops or whatever it might be, that there is a way to, you know, a very clear way now that we can intervene and we can start to shift those processes on a really fundamental level. So, you know, for me, where I, would like to see this stuff heading is first of all, becoming much more mainstream. And secondly, something that would even be taught in schools, you know, teaching children how to self-regulate at that age, I think would be incredible and give them a skill set that they could use for the rest of their lives. Because for so much of us, our actions, our behaviors, our thoughts and our conditions are really, um, you know, being kind of pushed around by, our past conditioning. And this is happening uh, so unconsciously without our permission and without our awareness. Um, And like I said, it is that phenomenon of trying to drive forward with one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. But if people have these skills, and even first and foremost, just the, the knowledge or the understanding that actually your brain does change itself, it's primed to do that, and the body and everything else follows suit, that to give people this ability um, I think would be really profound that they could just function um, and feel like themselves again, like their best selves without getting pulled off task.
1: Yeah. And, and teaching this, I think to, to children like in schools could probably prevent having to do a lot of the hard work later on of having to try to reverse all of the, the negative programming that, you know, is kind of just, just going on. You know, it, it'd be a lot easier if you just kind of get it right the first time.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well put. I mean, as you know, in in biohacking, like we always like to think of efficiency and how can we create a more efficient system and having a lot of anxiety or having an illness, these are not efficient things to go through. It's really, you know, we, of course, by no fault of our own, we, we dig ourselves holes that we then need to exert more energy and effort to dig ourselves out of. And this makes it really challenging and draining on the system to have that energy and vitality to move forward and do the things that we actually want to do to make the differences we want to make in the world or to change ourselves and, you know, become who we really are. So I think if you give people these tools early on, um, they can move forward a lot more, more efficiency, uh, more efficiently, um, and, and ultimately have a lot more, um, energy, you know, to, to focus in a direction that they ultimately want to go. Definitely.
1: Yeah. Well, Ben, if uh, if people want to connect with you or find out more about ReOrigin, where would you direct them to?
0: Yeah. So they can check out if they're into this brain training stuff and especially have been dealing with any sort of chronic overwhelm, anxiety, depression, or uh, condition like those I mentioned, they can go to ReOrigin.com. That's Re-Origin.com. And there we have a brain training program Also, combined with a community and coaching that goes along with that to really help people implement this stuff in ways that are specific to their uh, experience, specific to what they're going through, so they can start to change their brain, to change their body, change their health, and move forward free of friction.
1: Awesome. Well, I recommend that you guys go ahead and check that out. And if you guys enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts. That'd be super helpful go ahead and also subscribe to our YouTube channel. we Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro. And if you guys have any questions, comments, any suggestions for future guests that you'd like to see on the show, go ahead and shoot me a DM at Roscoe's Wetsuit Neuro on Instagram. Ben, I wanted to thank you so much for taking the time and sharing all of your knowledge and expertise. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: It's my pleasure, Toby. Thanks for having me.